Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our evening Dhamma session. Tonight I'd like to talk about the Brahma Vihara. Brahma Vihara is translated often as divine abidings. I think it goes beyond that. I'm reluctant to translate it in that way. Because uh, divine is what we use for heaven. And it doesn't have anything to do with heaven, it has to do with Brahma. The Buddha used the word Brahma. Brahma means the highest. Or it means the sacred means the ultimate in a sense the high, the holy it's often used to mean holiness so I've translated here as houses of the holy which I thought was a saying but apparently it's just a Led Zeppelin album uh, anyway Brahma Vihara Vihara is dwelling or abode Brahma is holy. And these are not directly related with vipassana, but I think it's useful to look at how they relate to our practice anyway. And you'll see how we can relate them to insight meditation. The first thing to talk about is how these are understood in the world often misunderstood or misused in the world we often focus too much on the four brahma viharas brahma viharas are love or friendliness compassion um, sympathy or or rejoicing at others fortune and equanimity but these the way they're used often in the world is not not even in a terribly wholesome way love for example or friendliness we become attached to people thinking that that's love our friendliness can easily become affection and, and partiality to the point where we are um, attached and, and dependent on others and then vulnerable to their manipulation and vulnerable to loss and vulnerable to change and, and we suffer as a result compassion, we can get quite upset at the suffering of others angry even you can feel sad you can feel frustrated we can get burnt out quite disillusioned and depressed when we think about how much suffering there is in the world not a very useful or wholesome state of mind 
And as far as sympathetic joy, we can be happy for others, but we can also become uh, intoxicated by that. Become... In, uh, obsessed or, or indulgent in thinking about or, or rejoicing, right? I mean, the idea is when someone something good happens to someone and then you go out and party about it. That's not what is meant by rejoicing, right? Let's go celebrate. Celebrating, for example. Celebrating. Because then it just be, it's, it's no longer appreciation. It's about no longer about appreciation. It's about festivity. So we go the we go beyond what is wholesome. And with equanimity, the, of course, the most obvious way that this goes wrong is by not caring. In the sense of not. Being a, not discerning right from wrong, good from bad. So I'm greedy, and so what? Right? So I get angry, so what? I'm a selfish, ignorant individual. This kind of delusion. Um, equanimity based on delusions are quite dangerous because it's not really equanimity at all. But it's a sense of equanimity, a sense of not caring, lack of interest in your own benefit, or lack of interest in any benefit whatsoever. So the first thing to understand is these are not what is meant, or understand the ways that these go wrong. When we talk about how they go right, First is, even as insight meditators, how we put them into practice uh, in support of our practice, right? being friendly to each other. Even in a meditation center, we have to take care of each other. We have to take care of the, the, the residents. We have to clean. We have to, we have to be considerate of each other, replacing the toilet paper on the on the uh, holder not staying in the shower for a long long time cleaning up after ourselves cleaning up after each other there's a lot of friendliness involved there but certainly living in the world and as a Buddhist this is something for us to keep in mind even, even as a beginner meditator or someone who has just started to learn about Buddhism it's an important part because it's something that protects you and it provides you with a sort of a, a guiding principle. So you know that when you're angry at someone, you know that there's something wrong with that, that that's not really where we're headed. When you're trying to be friendly, you can have a sense of how friendly am I towards others. It can be a good way of discerning your, your commitment and your progress and your success on the path. Also, it's a good way to protect you and keep you on the path. Thinking that's not good, I better not be, I better not say those nasty things about others or do those nasty things to others. Being compassionate 
not wishing for others to suffer, being joyful, trying your best to rejoice and seeing how jealous we are when other people get good things and saying to yourself, you know, that's not right. I should be happy for them. A lot of Buddhists do these sorts of things, even those that don't particularly um, set themselves in the medita meditation practice. And equanimity, trying not to be upset, trying not to be reactionary to other people's suffering or to their causing you suffering when others harm you, to not get upset by, uh, by that when others do bad deeds to not get angry to not hate them to try and be equanimous above all equanimous above all remembering that Reality is what it is. You're getting upset about it or attached, attached to it isn't actually to anyone's benefit. So that's how we, in a conventional sense, how we put them into practice. Of course, then there's the practice sense, the meditative sense. You can actually meditate on these. Tomorrow I'm asked to do a short loving kindness meditation it's actually why I thought of this because they're having this thing called Buddha Day which I'm not really sure what it means I meaning once a year they've got this Buddha Day thing uh, tomorrow's the day of the year and they want, they've, I was asked to take part and do a short loving kindness meditation But you can take this up as a meditation practice and then it really does lead to the Brahma realms. It does lead to the God realms. You become godlike or godly or god. A god. When you engage, when you fix your mind on the quality of love, you fix your mind on the quality of compassion and there are ways of developing this. You spend days and weeks and months to the point where it's all of you and you have unlimited love and compassion and joy and equanimity towards all beings but I think the most important way for us to think about these four things is not really in this sense at all it's more in the sense that our in practice of insight meditation helps us or should lead us to all four of these. And the meditation for in many ways is 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 about I mean for many of us a big part of it is how it's going to affect our lives in a conventional sense. Because the existence of beings, of course, is just a convention in our minds, but that's how we live. We go home and we have to deal with people. And so one of the great benefits of meditation practice is that it ideally helps you cultivate these or, or makes these more naturally a part of who you are. Right? Because um, you free yourself from all the things that cause us to be nasty and mean to others and jealous and partial and cause us to get upset so our, our default 
is to be friendly towards others. I mean, friendliness is just reacting appropriately to someone who uh, who wishes something of you. Maybe your time, maybe a, a support, material support, maybe psychological, mental support, emotional support. And uh, compassion when they're suffering, when others are suffering, fi finding ways. It's just natural when someone has the the need of of being let out of their suffering, you know, being healed or cured or or having their problems fixed and and so on. And but it's natural because this is the natural inclination of the mind. When you see things clearly, when you have a, a, an objective, a non-reactionary outlook, and the, the 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 obvious response to someone who needs your help, wishing for something positive or wishing for something negative to be removed from their lives, is to help them. To give them what they need and to help them out of a bad situation. And so rather than really focusing all our time, which a lot of Buddhists do, I think, on developing these, working hard to develop these, we should work hard to to purify our minds of the obstacles to all these things because when your mind is in a natural state you're, you're not, your default is to be kind to be compassionate to rejoice in others to appreciate others when someone does something good and they tell you about it or they express it to you the natural reaction is to say that's good it's only our sense of low self-worth that makes us jealous and makes us upset when others get good things and of course the natural out outcome is equan equanimity so these are really good indicators of where we're going in a conventional sense what kind of a person are is a meditator what kind of a person are they A person who has all four of these These are Qualities that protect our practice But they're also qualities that come from our practice A person who practices insight meditation Being mindful of experience Seeing things as they are naturally inclined to be a good person naturally inclined to be a a a good friend it's interesting to watch how many meditators after or hear about how many meditators after they do an intensive course and go home have a real hard time 
fitting in. They find themselves struggling and they feel like meditation has actually made them a bit of a pariah or, or a social misfit. Perhaps social misfit is probably the best term. And they question this sort of thing and they question the, the benefits of it perhaps or they struggle to see what good it has been to them when in fact it seems to have caused a lot of stress and you know, if, if a meditator has really had good results then they, this sort of doubt is not something that cuts deep but certainly it cuts deep in all those who expect them to behave the way they used to behave and find them different, find them perhaps aloof or um, unresponsive, unattentive Unfriendly, even. And so I, I think I think it's important to look at to understand this. I mean, in, in this sense, to to be strong in in the results that you've gained and to stand strong, because in fact, what you're getting when you go home is a whole bunch of people who don't have friendliness, who don't have compassion who are used to clinging and used to uh, crying and suffering and getting angry and being jealous and manipulating each other and when you don't play along they all turn on you right? it happens um, people are ordinary people they can't take change and they certainly can't take people who are, are not willing to cling right? When everyone around you is asking you to get excited, hey, let's go party! I got an I got a promotion. Let's go party. No, I'd rather just stay home. Good for you, though. Makes someone very angry, right? Because they expect you to be festive. They expect that when a good thing comes, it's not enough to just appreciate it. We should somehow use it as a cause to go and indulge in senseless. Uh, enjoyment of sensual pleasures so I mean it's perhaps part of what we have to understand is that these are special states these are not the ordinary states these are not states that allow you to fit in with society Society is not built on these foundations. I mean, some societies somewhere m might theoretically be, but it's not something you find as the general state of affairs. Mostly society is built on competition, built on manipulation, built on attachment, clinging. So meditation makes you a sort of a special individual Much more impervious to the sorts of suffering that go on But much less able to engage in a system that's based very much on The sorts of things that we're moving away from Built on, on stress and suffering, really the causes of stress and suffering And so the Brahma Viharas are really a, 
really a state of, of greatness. They can be cultivated artificially by themselves and directly working on them, or they can come from, stem from the greatness of enlightenment, the greatness of the clarity of mind that comes from insight meditation. So it's useful to think about, I think. And that's your Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. And I think I'm going to have to put a pause on these. I'm going to have to stop broadcasting for a while. Yeah, I've got a period of time coming up where I have other commitments. So I think the next broadcast will be a week today on April 18th. April 18th, I should be back. And then we'll have to figure out what my new schedule is going to be like. Meanwhile, if there are any questions tonight, please go and post them on our meditation page. How does one go about dealing with very talkative people such as their parents that they live with and are no longer interested in the subject matter of what they are talking about but feel rude to say they are not interested in what they are talking about? Well, it's one thing to not be interested. It's another thing to be upset about. Right? Because... I mean, if you've ever been in the forest and you hear the birds talking, do you get angry at the birds for for what they're talking about? I remember sitting with Ajahn Tong, my teacher. And I'd sit for him with five for I'd sit for him sit with him for five hours a day. And uh, sometimes it was an hour of listening to some old nun, usually, because the old women would, uh, ri old rich women usually, would, ri would go to the monastery as a way of retiring, of leaving home. You know, society in Thailand is a little bit, well, it's quite sexist, uh, prejudiced towards women, and, and has been traditionally. And so... Uh, Sometimes the best place for them to get to, to live uh, in their old age is in the monastery. I mean, there's more to it than that. Many of them are very much devoted to the practice, but some of them are just seem to be somewhat devoted to chatting. And so they'd come and chat with Ajahn for, I, I, it seemed like an hour, maybe half an hour. Probably not an hour. But he never got upset, and he never tried to brush them off. I just sat there and listened and nodded sometimes and smiled sometimes. You have to check yourself. You don't worry about other people. Someone else is talking, well that's the experience you have. So them talking. If you don't like it, if it upsets you, that's also your problem. Or that's your problem.
because I certainly wasn't as ha as happy about all this long chatting going on than my, as my teacher was. It's much harder for me to sit there and listen to them jabbering on about nothing. And that was my problem. It's quite good practice, in fact. What is the Buddhist view on serendipity? I don't have really a view. I mean, we can speculate that what we call serendipity is often related to karma or that sort of thing, but we don't use such words like serendipity. Serendipity is just noticing a pattern, noticing a... Um, well, noticing something, really. That, it, that it's something... Um, some sort of coincidence, almost. But what is coinc coincidence is coincidence. It's just it happened that way. And so many in many ways we're just conditioned to see those sorts of things and be excited by them. When all the times that there was no coincidence, we uh, we didn't notice. We didn't say, "Oh, well, that's unserendipitous," <laughs> right? I mean, it's unserendipitous that you asked that question and I wasn't thinking about it. Or, well, that's you know. Or it's unserendipitous that I arrived at the bus stop and there was no bus there. But isn't it serendipitous that sometimes I just get to the bus stop right as the bus is coming? And then I notice it. Or you're thinking about someone and they call, but many times you think about someone and they don't call. You know, I mean, so there can be, there can be relationship. There can be reasons that we don't really understand. But uh, quite often I think it's just a coincidence. I mean, at any rate, at any rate, whether there is a cause or not a cause, whether it's just a random coincidence or a reason, uh, caused coincidence, it's still just a coincidence. They co The things coincide. And that's how we look at it in Buddhism. We see what's happening for, what, for what's happening. I don't try and judge it or make stories or connections about it. Vedana is explained as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, but can a feeling be pleasant or unpleasant without liking and disliking? Um, pleasant or unpleasant? Well, there are actually five feelings, and that's why the Abhidhamma separates it out into five, because there can be a painful bodily feeling without disliking but there cannot be a painful mental feeling without disliking on the other hand there can be a pleasant bodily feeling well the bodily feeling itself doesn't arise with liking or disliking um, but a, a pleasant mental feeling can arise with liking or without liking for example kusala the kusala jittas all have all can arise with somanasa, and there's no liking there. It's just a happy, a, a pleasant mental feeling involved. It doesn't have to be. It can also be a neutral feeling. But there is the potential for a a wholesome mind to arise with pleasure, without any liking of it. On the other hand, loba 
greed, the lobamula jit, jitta can can arise with with pleasure as well. So it's uh, with liking or without liking. But a, a mental, a mental unpleasant feeling, mental displeasure, mental unpleasant feeling, is always with disliking, displeasure, with anger, patiga. But a painful physical feeling can be without disliking, or as I think, physical feelings, because of how the the mind series series works. Physical feelings are always, I think, without, I mean, just technically, because you have to experience it first and then react mentally. But the physical is never liking, there's no room for liking or disliking at that point, I think. But in the sequence of experience of the physical feeling, there will come a, a moment in the mind of pleasure or displeasure, with liking or disliking, or with wholesomeness. Okay, and that's all the questions. So that's all for the week. I'll be back again next Tuesday. Thank you all for coming out.